question is, what is Medicare for All? In this episode, we continue our conversation with Professor Xiao and peer into his crystal ball. What does the future hold for healthcare in the U.S.? How would things change if we passed Medicare for All? Welcome to Understanding Medicare for All. I'm your host, Stacey He. And I'm your other host, Jake Petrini. Hey, Stacey. Do you know what Medicare for All is? No, do you? No. We are confused, perplexed, interested, curious, and uncertain about Medicare for All. We've had Professor John McDonough speak on our podcast about political feasibility, or rather the infeasibility of Medicare for All in the United States. You are not a stranger to the politics that surround the implementation of single-payer systems in any given country. What are your thoughts on the political feasibility of Medicare for All in the U.S.? I think it's not feasible immediately, because if you look at the, the Kaiser Foundation survey, when close to 70% of people in America say they support Medicare for all or single payer. But when you say you have to pay higher taxes, that percentage right away dropped to 40%. So right now, American people embrace this noble vision, but they do not understand what they really will gain if they adopt it. They get a lot of, I call half-truth about uh, they have to pay higher amounts and so forth. So I believe in the long run, America will embrace Medicare for all politically. That's the public. And I believe the employers will come majority of employers, because right now you hear the complaint privately by executives. This healthcare cost is driving us that our employees want more cash wage increase. We cannot give it to them. And they threaten strike. Just look at Harvard Union. Last year, that's what they were going to go on strike about. So employers begin to realize this, and I would say majority of them will come to embrace, say, we have to change the system. But right now, maybe the majority are not in that position. Second, the most powerful group will come around in eight, 10 years, and they are the American physicians. American physicians, now 47% of physicians are on salary plus bonus. They're employed. You survey these physicians, they're always in favor of single payer. They find so much of their time and work is spent on filling out forms and dealing with a variety of insurance companies with different rules. They want single payer. So when America has majority of the practicing physicians being salaried, you will see the physician going to swing toward its support. They are both employers and physicians are powerful groups. You can tell the people you're still going to have free choice of your doctors, pharmacies, and hospitals. You can tell the doctors and hospitals under single payer your income is not going to be reduced as long as you don't cheat. Okay? Then I think that will build up at least the physicians may support it, 
hospitals may stay neutral if you assure them that. That's how Medicare was passed, by the way. President Johnson assured doctors and hospitals, your income is not going to be affected. A matter of fact, tell the hospitals they can have a 2% add-on on their bills. Hmm. And that then you begin to build up, reduce the political opposition. You build up a coalition of supporters. I believe that would take possibly eight years from now. Two elections from now, you may see the public is educated, and they also find this financial burden is high. They understand if we educate them correctly, the cash waste has been decreased because of it. Majority employers may come around, physicians come around, then two big opponents will be insurance industry and pharmaceutical industry. And so you're saying two elections from now, so eight years, that's for people to have a better understanding of what single-payer systems are and they'll be okay with it, but that's not actually having Well, I think that's, that, I like to believe I, I don't have a crystal ball to forecast <laughs> the politics. Please tell us. But I, I believe this issue of a single-payer system will service in the next election and the election after that. And the, it's the election after that it's going to be seriously debated for the reasons I cited. Mm -hmm. More people will be supporting it, and the more political leaders campaigning will have to work out what policy I will adopt to realize that dream. Right. Because right now, we are not there. So let's say we've broken through then the political barriers eight years later, and a single-payer plan is now going to be implemented in the United States nationally. What would this implementation mean for Americans, tax-wise, healthcare-wise, et cetera? And what promises of coverage or affordability would the federal government be able to keep? And what can American citizens realistically expect? What challenges do we have now would go away and what new challenges would then arise? We give you the real easy question. <laughs> Super easy. I was going to ask you, do you have any harder questions? <laughs> I, I don't pretend I have the answers, but let me give you the answers to some part of your question. A single pair will reduce the healthcare costs for Americans, while it will cover the uninsured and bring up the insurance coverage for the underinsured. That, I think, is empirically sound, and the numerous studies has come to the same conclusion. And there, recently, there's just a, a paper that summarized all these different studies by academics. Okay? So, Healthcare will become more affordable under a single-payer system for Americans. If it's done correctly, I have predicted in my modeling work, after you spend money to cover everyone, to bring up the underinsured upward, you spend money to help those who are going to lose their jobs. Those are the claim clerks. Give them a salary guarantee for two years and give them training 
to find new jobs. After you spend all that money, every American still can save more than $1,000 each person. Per year? Per year. Mm. Per person. Mm -hmm. So the benefit is quantifiable, it's clear, and uh, the difficulty is to really develop some policy that the political landscape is such that allow you to zigzag and maneuver to the goal you set. So it sounds like then the majority, based on your modeling, the majority of spending will initially go to increasing coverage and then to job security for people who, lo- who will lose their jobs and retraining. Right. Okay. A portion of that. But the, the difficulty is this. <clears throat> we, the Americans today, are paying health care through different pockets. We pay through state taxes, we pay through federal income tax, we pay through sales tax, we pay through our out-of-pocket, we pay a portion of our premiums to our employed, and our employer pays a portion of that. So there are many little pipes we pay it out. Now, when you consolidate it to one pipe, and that's usually is, may mean you're going to collect the tax. Then people will say, my gosh, my tax is increasing. But they don't, under- don't understand their spending from other pockets are going to decrease. That's where the lack of understanding and lack of trust mm-hmm. going on now. The question for young people is really to do research, how do you overcome that? That's a major barrier because the opponents right away are going to say, you're going to pay higher taxes. But they don't tell you, you're actually going to reduce your spending for health care through numerous other pockets. And the net amount is you're going to save at least $1,000 each year for yourself. But that's a difficult education for the public. Will there be people who, as a result, end up paying more or people who will have to cross-subsidize for the low-income population? Definitely, there's going to be a a distributional effect, but that depends on how you design the financing. Senator Elizabeth Warren says she's going to tax the wealthy people. She's going to tax the uh, financial transaction, then that tax will fall on a particular selected group of people. So th- to answer your question is definitely I think if we fund it in a fair way, then the wealthy people are going to pay more. The low-income people are going to pay, pay less. And the poor people may not going to pay anything at all. So that means, yes, there is going to be a transfer from the wealthy affluent people to the less affluent and the poor. And again, that's the issue of ethic, social values. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that healthcare should be financed in an equitable way? Mm-hmm. Can we ask one last thing to close? Yes. <laughs> Two-part question. You can keep it brief if you'd like. Um, what keeps you up at night? 
And what gives you hope for the future? What worries me is really the United States. I see the United States is not moving forward to dealing with the social problems we have in the United States, as well as the inequities in the United States. And then these problems are just going to get more and more serious, and that's going to be left for the future, mm-hmm. present or future generations. Second, I think our reputation around the world is taking a great hit. I really think we're entering into a new era about what position and role United States will be able to play. It's not the role we had in the past decade. And our current president has really did some serious damage. And people don't trust in America anymore. To build up that trust, that takes time. Countries do not necessarily want to follow any other country's lead. Americans spend decades building up the trust and the inspiration, and other countries say, that's the country I like to follow. We are right now doing serious damage to that foundation the United States have built. That's what worries me the most. Mm besides the domestic one, which is we're not dealing with our social problems. And then, if I may ask, what might give you hope for the future? My hope, actually, is the young people. I think the young people, even college students or that age, I ask ask them, what's foremost on your mind about the future? Often they answer the climate change. Well, that thing, that wasn't there before. They worry about the big, much bigger picture. And so young people, I think, are much more aware of the social problems and the climate or economic problems we're creating. And I think the young people uh, will tend to actually elect leaders who wants to solve these problems. That's given me hope. Because I think the United States really is uh, very strong in not only the economy, but in the democracy. And we can improve our democracy, but it's still something that we, rules of law and so forth. We can improve on them, but we have a good system and so therefore, I, I like to see the United States maintain its leadership and be a strong nation. Great. Well, Amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you, Professor Shao, for joining us today. It's been such a privilege to have you. Well, it's my privilege to talk to you. Please stay tuned for Episode 7 with former Medicare for All fellow Stephanie King, in which we discuss her work with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal in the U.S. House of Representatives. We've also included a short bonus episode with Professor Shao, in which he discusses his state-level work in the U.S., previously in the state of Vermont and now in the state of California. 
If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website where we will have a summary of the episode as well as links and articles for additional learning. Thank you so much for joining us today and we'll see you next time.